Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Students are counting the days until school's out for the summer. But then what? We'll check in with the New Haven School District about the kinds of activities available to keep kids from losing what they've learned over the last 10 months. It's known as the summer slide. That conversation later. First, a summer ritual for many Americans is heading to the pool. But not everyone has a pool or even knows how to swim. Minority children are more likely to not know how to swim. A USA Swimming Foundation study last year found more than 6 out of 10 African American children can't swim. Nearly 5 out of 10 Hispanic or Latino kids don't know how to swim. And today we're taking a closer look at this disparity. Coming up, we'll hear from a community nonprofit about a program that's confronting this problem, and we'll find out whether it's making an impact in the New Haven community. Now, do you know how to swim? Did your parents? And if you never learned, we want to know why. The number 860-275-7266. You can email us where we live at WMPR.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We also wanted to know how the history of segregation in the U.S. contributed to disparities in swimming today. And so on with us from Montana Public Radio is Jeff Wiltsey, professor of history at University of Montana and author of the book Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I mentioned uh, swimming is uh, largely seen as a summer activity. At the same time, there are many Americans who don't know how to swim or have uh, not very good swimming skills. Uh, The CDC, the American uh, Academy of Pediatrics, also uh, says drowning is the second leading cause of death among children. And we're also seeing statistics that I mentioned that this uh, disparity and lack of swimming disproportionately affects children of color. In your research, why is that? Walk us through the numbers that we see today, and then we'll learn a little bit about the history. Sure. In general, um, black children, or excuse me, in general, black Americans are half as likely to know how to swim as white Americans, and black children are about three times more likely to drown than white children. And so the question becomes, why is that? I mean, this is a significant disparity in both swimming and drowning rates across this social line. And studies have oftentimes focused on kind of contemporary social and cultural explanations, such as fear of water, parents not swimming, um, perceptions that swimming is a white sport. And so in my research, what I've done is ask the question, well, what accounts for this? I mean, what accounts for the fact that um, that, that, that African-American adults are less likely to swim than, than white adults? What accounts for the perception that swimming is a white sport um, or white activity? What accounts for the greater levels of fear generally of water among African-Americans and among white Americans? And to my mind, the primary explanation for this is what's happened in the past. 
and that it's past discrimination in access to swimming pools, swim lessons, and swim teams, such that um, you know large numbers, a widespread part of, of white Americans sort of learned to swim historically during the 20th century, and parents have then passed that on to their children, whereas because of restricted access to swimming pools and swim lessons, um, that swimming never became as, as broadly common or popular um, among African-Americans, and thus it hasn't been passed down generationally and generationally as, as, as widespread as it has among whites. Now, Jeff, uh, in your book, you, you look at uh, the history again. Uh, you mentioned the uh, 20th century. Uh, talk about how swimming, uh, how it first became seen as this national pastime and when uh, you saw the surge of, of uh, swimming pools being built. Yeah, it, it's worth starting out with understanding that, that, that research has shown that during the 19th century and the very early 20th century, um, that, that people of African ancestry throughout the Americas were, were more accomplished swimmers than people of European ancestry. And so that, 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 that people of European ancestry becoming more accomplished swimmers is a relatively recent phenomenon. And it's really something that developed during the 20th century as a consequence of the building of swimming pools and access to those swimming pools. Prior to the 1920s, there weren't that many swimming pools in the United States, and swimming was not a, a broadly popular or common activity. But then during the 1920s and 1930s, cities throughout the country built literally thousands of swimming pools. And many of these swimming pools were large leisure resort pools, that, that, that many of them were larger than football fields. We've kind of lost track of, of these grand leisure resort pools today because so many of them have been closed down. But there were thousands of pools during the 1920s and 1930s, and they were generally open to whites. But because of racial discrimination, segregation, in some cases outright exclusion, black Americans had far more restricted access to these public pools. Mm -hmm. And so many, many fewer as a percentage black Americans sort of learned to swim and swimming didn't become as common a part of, of the recreational culture during this period when it surged in popularities among white Americans. And then the same pattern was repeated itself again during the 1950s and 1960s. There were literally tens of thousands of private club pools that were developed out in suburbs around the United States. And if the earlier public pools were, were restricted to black Americans, the, the tens of thousands of private club pools developed during the post-World War II period were almost entirely off limits to black Americans. And so once again, white Americans, in this case mostly middle-class Americans, had easy access to appealing swimming pools where they would go day after day during the summer. They would join swim teams, um, whereas black Americans did not have access to these pools where swimming became, again, broadly popularized. Uh, when you talk about uh, the swimming pools uh, being built in, in many cities uh, starting in the 20s, where did that interest come from? And in the beginning, did you see these pools uh, separated by gender uh, and before it became an issue among uh, racial lines? Yeah, the, the, a primary impetus for the pool building during the 1920s and 1930s was to promote a, a community life that, that public officials, when you go back and read their intentions and thinking about building these giant resort pools, that they wanted these pools to promote um, a vibrant community life 
And they also had a very family focus in mind where they wanted these pools to be accessible to families so mother, father, children could all go to the pool together. And so what that necessitated was gender integration. And so prior to the 1920s, what pools there were, and there weren't a lot of pools, but what pools there were, were strictly segregated along gender lines because of the intimacy involved in their use. And so males and females would either use separate pools or they would use the same pool but at different times. But during the 1920s, as city officials wanted to promote um, a vibrant community life, wanted to promote family sociability, they then gender integrated the pools so families could go together and swim together. And, and that's the point at which, at least in the north and also in border state cities like St. Louis um, and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, that they imposed racial segregation. And so prior to gender integration, Blacks and whites swam together. I mean, in my research in New York, in Boston, Pittsburgh, Chicago, lots and lots of cities, I found that, that prior to gender integration, blacks and whites swam together. But then once cities allowed males and females to swim together, that's when white swimmers and public officials within those cities um, sort of segregated pools along racial lines. Um, in large part because they didn't want black men interacting with white women at such intimate spaces. Jeff Wiltsey is author of Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America, joining us today from Montana Public Radio. As we talk about uh, swimming disparities uh, that exist in our country today, we're looking at the history of, of where some of those disparities uh, have come from, and, and one being uh, how uh, swimming pools uh, were segregated and they weren't accessible uh, to black Americans uh, in, in the 20th century. Uh, you know, in the, in the South, we know under Jim Crow, you know, official segregation was law of the land. But I want you to talk a little bit about some of the anecdotes uh, and, and incidents that you uncovered in your research in places like Pittsburgh, where you saw uh, violent encounters at pools when uh, blacks wanted to swim at the same place where white Pittsburghers wanted to swim. Yeah. Ironically, or, or perhaps paradoxically, it was in more northern cities where um, racial segregation was not official city or, or state policy, that violence occurred. And so Pennsylvania actually had a civil rights law that prohibited racial discrimination and access to public facilities. And so Pittsburgh as a city couldn't really impose an official policy of racial segregation. And yet in 1931, when it opened a gigantic outdoor pool in Highland Park, this was the first pool that was gender integrated. And so previously, there's good evidence from the Pittsburgh Courier, the African-American newspaper in Pittsburgh, that blacks and whites swam together at the gender segregated pools with little problem. Um, but then in 1931, Pittsburgh opens a giant outdoor pool and allows males and females to use it together, but they could not impose an official policy of racial segregation. And so they effectively left it to white swimmers who would literally attack any black swimmers that came to use the pool. And typically this was young um, African-American men, um, teenagers, 15, 16, 17 years old, who would come to this pool, this giant pool. There'd be hundreds, in some cases, thousands of white swimmers there who would intimidate them. But if they persisted and entered the pool, they would be punched and dunked under the water and kicked. Um, and that this was the means, intimidation and violence, that was used to impose de facto segregation at these pools. 
Eventually, uh, courts ruled that you couldn't uh, segregate and keep people away from using these pools if they weren't white. And so then what did we see happen in the, in the 50s and 60s, Jeff? Yeah, racial desegregation of public pools began in the late 1940s. Um, and then really continued to the 1960s. And so it began in some northern cities in the 19, late 1940s. And then by the mid-1950s, um, most pools, most public pools in the north had been racially desegregated. And then that shifts to the south during the early 1960s. Um, and, and the response was in the south very blatant, that in, in, in the southern United States, cities just closed pools. Um, closed all their public pools rather than allow mixed-race use. And so in many southern cities, um, in many areas of the South, there were literally no public pools after racial desegregation because cities just simply closed them down. In, in the North, the response was, was more nuanced, that typically what happened in the North is when a pool that had previously been um, for whites only became racially desegregated and black swimmers started to use it, that white swimmers in mass abandoned it. Mm -hmm. I found in case after case after case that, that white attendance at a pool that had become racially desegregated would drop by 90 or 95 percent when, when, when black swimmers started using it. And so overall usage of many of these pools, especially these large resort pools that I talked about previously, that they started to attract relatively few swimmers. And so cities stop investing money in them and maintaining them. And so over time, very quickly actually, over the course in many cases of just a few years, the pools became dilapidated, they, they required significant maintenance, and cities simply refused to pay the costs of maintaining them or rebuilding them, and so ended up closing them down. And so what happens during the 1960s and 70s in particular is a mass wave of pool closings, public pool closings, which again, so, so African-Americans and other people of color get access to pools in the wake of desegregation, but on the heels then of that access, many of these pools get shut down, which again reinforces their restricted access as whites are able generally mm -hmm. to swim at private pools. So when you see uh, these pools closing, a uh, lack of access to uh, black Americans uh, to even be at a pool or learn how to swim. So this then led into this uh, a lack of culture of, of swimming where you had generations who never learned to swim. So it wasn't something that they then uh, tried uh, to get their children to learn. Exactly. That, that's how I understand it. I mean, that, that's how I, 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 I explain it. And the, to me, the important idea is that that I think for many people, they think that what happened in the past is in the past, and it doesn't directly influence um, what's happening today. And, and that's certainly not the case here, that, that the past discrimination continues to shape swimming and drowning rates today, precisely because swimming is essentially a, a cultural practice or it's a cultural habit. And you can think about it in generational terms, that if you grow up going to a pool and it's an important part of your upbringing, you then tend to pass that along or create those same opportunities for your children. And then your children do it for their children. And so these cultural practices like swimming, either competitive swimming or recreational swimming, get passed on generationally, generationally. Well, if you as a child did not swim 
and instead you grew up more generally with a fear of water and a sense that swimming pools were not a place where you belonged, then you obviously didn't take your children to the swimming pool. And then that, that fear of water or that sense of not belonging at a pool gets passed down from generationally to generationally. And that's what we find among many black families. Uh, this is where we live. Again, today we're looking at uh, swimming culture and disparities where there are minority children uh, who don't know how to swim uh, compared to, to uh, white children. Even when we're talking about um, how this uh, uh, leads to some outcomes and stories we're seeing today, Jeff, there was that highly publicized case in, in Louisiana back in 2010 uh, known as the Red River Tragedy. You've also written about this. Uh, tell our listeners briefly what happened there. Yeah, it's a it's a tragic story that highlights the disparities that we're talking about, which is one young African-American man, I mean, a, a teenager, waded out into the, the Rouge River in Louisiana and, and essentially stepped off a ledge where he went into deep water that was over his head, and he couldn't swim. And so he started flailing about and saying, help me, help me, help me. And he was there with a, a larger family party, and several of his cousins sort of rushed out just instinctively to try to save them. And they went off this ledge as well into deep water, and none of them could swim. And the adults were standing along the the, the shoreline watching their children drown, but they couldn't do anything to help because they couldn't swim either. And and, and finally, um, someone from afar heard the screaming, came and ran, jumped into the water and pulled one of the children out. And it was the original young man who 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 was the original one to start drowning. But then all of his or the cousins of his that went in to save him drowned. And I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was six or seven um, young African-Americans drowned because no one within this larger family knew how to swim. Uh, today, when we look at uh, neighborhoods and cities, there aren't a lot of community pools uh, anymore. And what, after the recession, Jeff, have we seen even municipalities taking an interest in trying to spend the money to have this uh, pool in uh, in their neighborhoods, so to increase access for all children, not just the the children who who have families that can afford swim lessons or a, a membership to a private club. My my sense, and this is mostly anecdotal is that there has been a resurgence of funding for public water recreation um, over maybe the last 10 years or so, so coming out of the the so-called Great Recession. Now, what's different from the past is that a lot of these facilities are, are water parks where they're not traditional swimming pools, but they are um, like lily pads and sprays and you know, you'd maybe wade out to your waist or to your knees. And so they're providing a nice summertime recreation, escape from the heat, but they're not serving the same social or life-saving purpose as, as swimming pools used to because these really, these, these, a lot of these facilities don't actually involve much swimming. And then going forward, uh, Jeff, we were talking about the history of discrimination and segregation in this country, uh, you know, being one of the consequences of the disparities we see today and in, in the ability uh, for Ameri- some Americans to be able to swim. But when we look at uh, the uh, economic barriers and uh, the socioeconomic factors that may lead people to not be able to have access, is that a bigger issue today? I think it is, continues to be a big issue, but it's now splitting 
along a different social line, which is now um, access to swimming pools is, is, is less sort of restricted along strictly racial lines. And it's more now restricted along class lines, such that middle and upper class Americans of, 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 of whatever racial identity have easier access to swimming pools, swim lessons, and swim teams than do poor and working class Americans. And that's a consequence of the general trend towards privatization. Now, I just mentioned that over the last 10 years, there's been something of a resurgence of funding of public water recreation. But for a long period of time, pools were shut down, relatively new public pools were opened, um, and that instead, the new pools that were opened were private pools. And so now, within the United States, we have large numbers of private pools that if you have the money, you can easily access them, where we still have a relative dearth of public pools. And so if you need to access public recreation, you're, you're, you're far less likely to be able to access a pool than if you can uh, afford to access a private pool. And so kind of casting forward in time, 15, 20 years from now, I think what we're going to find is that the swimming and drowning disparities that exist in the United States will start to, to, to show more clearly along class lines than along racial lines. But to the extent to which people of color are overrepresented among the poor and working classes in America, mm -hmm. we'll still see a racial uh, dynamic to it. Jeff Wildsey is professor of history at University of Montana, author of Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America. Uh, Jeff joined us today uh, from the studios of Montana Public Radio. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we've been learning about why minority children are more likely to drown than white children, first taking a look at the history uh, in our country. But now we want to focus on the programs that are working to change some of these startling statistics. We're going to hear more after the break. And we want to hear from you, too. Does your community have a public pool where children can learn to swim? Or is the onus on parents to pay for lessons at a private pool? We want to hear from you. 860 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from historian Jeff Wiltsey about why segregation at pools in the United States uh, is one of the reasons that led to disparities in swimming ability among African Americans. Now, there are programs working to confront this problem to help all children learn to swim. LEAP in New Haven is one of them. Joining us now by phone, Henry Fernandez, executive director of LEAP in New Haven. Henry, welcome to the show. Oh, great to be here, Lucy. So tell me a little bit about LEAP and specifically um, what kind of swimming programs do you have there for children and families in New Haven? Absolutely. So uh, we teach about uh, 300 kids to swim uh, every year uh, for free. Uh, we do that through um, uh, after-school programs and um, part, as part of our uh, summer camp as well. Uh, the children that we serve are um, low-income uh, children, uh, by and large, and uh, overwhelmingly uh, black and Latino. Uh, we're very excited because not only do we teach kids to swim, but we also uh, train lifeguards and swim instructors also from our community, also uh, primarily African-American and Latino, because we think it's really important uh, that, um, A, we can provide uh, jobs in the community um, through our swim program, uh, but then also, um, B, 
uh, it uh, allows us to have really great role models uh, for the kids um, that we're teaching to swim so that they see uh, that swimming is something that um, uh, African Americans and Latinos have a long, uh, uh, a long history in, uh, including uh, Olympians who are uh, like uh, Simone uh, uh, Manuel, um, who's uh, recently won uh, um, gold. So um, we're we're very excited about it. It's part of our bigger um, uh, programs that serve about 1,200 kids a year uh, that are very literacy focused and uh, do lots of other uh, great activities with kids. Um, but swimming's a, a hugely important, and I think um, having the show and um, the professor that you just had on to talk about why it is that we have this um, tremendous gap uh, in terms of who swims in the United States and what some of the horrible implications around drowning can be mm-hmm. if we don't teach all kids to swim. Uh, two of your staff are in the studio with me. I wanted to welcome them. Albert Eden, LEAP's Youth Development and Aquatics Director, and Nazir Peters, Lifeguard and Swim Instructor with LEAP, also a sophomore at UConn. Albert and Nazir, welcome to where we live. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. How you doing, Lucy? Great to be here. I'll start here with Albert. Uh, again, you're the um, aquatics director uh, at LEAP, also uh, director of youth development. You grew up in the city, so I'm in New York City. So I'm curious about uh, what led you to be have an interest in swimming, and when did you learn? Well, I learned at a young age, uh, about middle school, high school. Um, took me about ten years to build that confidence. Uh, had an experience um, as a five year old. Was kind of just thrown in the pool by uh, one of my uncles and it was tough. I didn't know how to swim. I was flailing in the water and I was like, okay, let's check this off the list. <laughs> that that sounds like that, that might resonate with some of us who've also experienced that way of trying to learn how to swim when a uh, an adult decides, well, the only way to learn is mm-hmm. by throwing you in. That's actually, I think, the worst way <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> uh, to instill mm-hmm. fear. Uh, when we were talking with the historian about uh, the lack of community pools and access uh, around uh, this country um, for many decades, um, I'm curious, what, you know, what were your your reaction to hearing that and what you saw growing up in New York City. Yeah, it's uh, it was true. So uh, coming from New York, uh, we had a few community pools, which just so happened to be in the uh, urban environments, uh, p- particularly in the uh, projects, um, gated pools, uh, no lifeguards, uh, pretty much just a space for uh, people to stand in a pool, sit around, um, really likely to uh, drown or be traumatized or, you know, increase their fears because uh, they didn't have the ability to uh, be taught how to swim. Um, and growing up in New York, I didn't know where else to swim other than just the community pool. Mm-hmm. So the kids that are coming to LEAP now uh, for the aquatics program, uh, what brought them there? And when we talk about uh, generations of, of not of having family members who may not been, have been swimmers, you know, what is the impetus that's getting uh, parents to think that this might be something their child needs to know? Well, it's an important skill. You know, um, families travel. uh, Friends have friends who have pools in their backyards. Uh, It's water. When it's hot, people want to jump in the water. Uh, And Philippe, um, it's been a tremendous focus. Um, I know the pool closed in 2009 due to funding. However, uh, when our executive director, uh, Henry Fernandez, uh, started his uh, new term there, uh, it was a goal. We're going to open this pool up. We're going to teach these kids how to swim. And parents realize there's a place to bring their kids to uh, learn how to swim um, and be safe in the water and have fun. And LEAP's mission um, with that has been to teach as many kids as possible to swim and then uh, have young kids who look like them, uh, high school seniors, um, juniors, and also college students to uh, be their mentors in the pools. 
Uh, one of those mentors is here, Nazir Peters, again, a lifeguard and swim instructor with LEAP, also a, a sophomore at UConn. Uh, Nazir, tell us uh, what introduced you to swimming. Well, actually, um, I started off swimming at a very young age at uh, Conti West Hills Magnet School, and uh, we had a pool there. I was taught how to swim, and about at the age of uh, 14, 15, I was uh, LIT at LEAP, and I was uh, taught by one of the lifeguards there, head lifeguard actually, Devin Perez, and he actually perfected the skills that I thought I learned in middle school, which ultimately made me a better swimmer than who I am today. So um, talk a little bit more about that, because you said that you learned to swim uh, earlier, but then you really got skills to be a strong swimmer. Now you're a lifeguard. I think that's interesting because uh, I think a question that some parents have is when they sign their kids up for swimming, they learn basic swimming, and then it's, you know, how how long should you keep going with those lessons? I'm just curious, you know, when you talk about learning to be a better swimmer, what was it about your mentor that helped you do that? It was uh, it was a process, really. It was a long, long road, kind of. Um, when I went in there, I thought I knew it all, but he had he thought otherwise. So he had me doing, like, very intense training, so coming in, maybe doing uh, 10 to 15 laps um, outside uh, exercises such as, like, push-ups, sit-ups, and then maybe doing a few laps around the pool just to, like, get me used to, like, um swimming fast, basically, mm -hmm. and being a great swimmer. And when uh, you're helping teach uh, young girls and boys to swim at LEAP, what are the questions they have or the fears they have? Well, a lot of them come in not even wanting to get in the pool. Like, they come from uh, backgrounds, like, where they don't know how to swim. Sometimes I get kids that come in the pool, and it's actually their first time ever being in a pool. So it's, like, it's a good thing for me to, like, see that, they're from uh, one situation, and then after they leave the pool, they're like, I'm not ready to go. Like, what, what, class is over already? No, no, we can't leave. So, uh, Albert, when uh, you hear uh, these uh, stories and you hear from parents and, and kids, um, is it very likely the same thing where they're afraid to go in the water the first time. And how do you coach them to get over that fear? Yeah, I think it starts with the team. Um, we train the team on how to uh, teach swim instruction, um, how to identify, uh, the, you know, safety issues in the pool, how to uh, manage those uh, issues. And then when it comes directly to the kids, um, our counselors, you know, are pretty uh, approachable. Um, they're always available. Uh, they sit with each class to start um, and talk about the safety. Um, they ask kids to raise their hand, uh, how many people have swam before, how many haven't swam, um, anyone afraid. You know, we try to get to know who the kids are a little bit before we uh, just have them go into the pool. Um, and then we work in small ratios. So we may have a ratio of one to two, one to three with our kids. So the staff isn't overwhelmed um, and then the kid doesn't get lost. So it's pretty much a, you know, direct uh, relationship with the uh, swim instructors to build that confidence. This is where we live. Uh, today we're looking into disparities among swimming uh, skills that minority children have, specifically uh, more six out of ten uh, African-American children in this country have low or no swimming ability. Uh, half of Hispanic and Latino kids um, also do not have uh, swimming skills. Uh, also, the CDC uh, finds that drowning is the second leading cause of death among children. And we wanted to learn more about programs to help uh, children learn to swim. Uh, we're learning about LEAP. Uh, 
uh, today uh, in New Haven. Uh, with us on the phone is Henry Fernandez, the executive director of Leap New Haven. I wanted to learn more, Henry, uh, before we take some calls on uh, access to pools. Albert uh, mentioned that at, at one point uh, there was a pool uh, that was closed. You were able to reopen it. But when we're in, if we're looking at the city of New Haven, where are the pools? And again, if families don't have, um, you know, enough income to pay for lessons. Uh, your, your, your organization allows children uh, to be uh, to learn to swim uh, for free. But I'm just curious about access. If you guys weren't there, uh, where would they go? Yeah, I, I think um, there's, a, there's a, some uh, small but important swimming programs in the, in the public uh, schools. Um, so New Haven is somewhat unique um, as a city in that uh, we don't have outdoor um, public pools. Um, our public pools are um, in the, uh, our publicly owned pools are in the uh, school buildings. And so what's good about that is it means that they can be accessible um, year round. Um, what's unfortunate about that is if you are going to a school that either uh, doesn't have a pool or has a pool but doesn't have swim instruction, um, you don't have access to, to actually learn, uh, learning to swim. Um, so the pools then become open um, for free swim um, during the during the summer, and uh, uh, and paid lessons um, year round. So uh, for us, uh, our children, um, 85% of the children that we work with um, receive free or reduced lunch, which is a, a key indicator of poverty. And so paying for um, swimming pools, uh, p- paying for access to swimming pools, or paying for lessons is out of reach for, for most of the families that we work with and if they had to pay. Uh, there are um, private pools. There's certainly Yale University, and they have paid instruction. Um, and, um, uh, but, it, you know, generally it's only open to um, people who are affiliated with the university. Uh, and then we have um, a lawn club in town that has a, a beautiful uh, pool as well, and um, that obviously is only open to members of the, uh, of the club, which is um, quite expensive. So, um, all the things that your um, uh, first speaker, the professor, talked about really um, rang true. The thing I would say, too, is I think Elvert does a really amazing job um, working with parents um, because, as the professor said, um, there's a lot of negative experiences with pools and, um, and simply that uh, a lot of parents don't know how to swim, and so they're not passing that uh, onto, their, uh, onto their kids unless they have access to a program like LEAP. And um, Elbert does a great job of talking with parents and overcoming some of those uh, some of those barriers, building their comfort. And I think that's really important too. That as a community organization, we at Leap um, recognize that there have been this been these historic disparities, um, and our staff does a really great job of um, working past uh, past those with parents, um, most of whom really want their kids to swim, uh, but they're also um, bring their own fear. And and finally, recently the the team started um, Adult Swim because so many of those parents were bringing their kids to swimming at LEAP um, and um, would say, you know, I should really learn to swim too so I can help my kids in the water. Um, And so we've uh, begun uh, Adult Swim classes at night as well. Elbert, how are those Adult Swim classes going? You know, they're great and uh, they're beginners just like their children. Uh, The fear is real. Um, They're a little intimidated by the uh, deeper end of our pool. Um, but we let them know it's just a process. You know, it's going to take you coming uh, for several swim sessions to uh, build that confidence. Uh, but they have fun. And I guess the great part is um, they're not swimming with their kids. So they're, all of their attention is focused um, in learning the instruction piece. 
Um, before we take a call, I just wanted to ask, uh, Henry mentioned that, um, Elvert, you hear from parents about their own uh, negative experiences with the water. Can you give us an example of what a parent has told you about why they ne- may never have learned to swim? Well, um, I, I definitely have one parent that comes to mind. Um, they lost a relative um, swimming, and uh, and actually uh, one of the kids actually knew uh, that their uh, cousin had passed away from um, drowning. And they already had that trauma. The kid didn't want to swim, didn't agree with the parents signing them up. But mom was like, look here, you know, we know firsthand the effects of not knowing how to swim. And we need to learn how to swim. And the key word she said was we. Um, And in talking to these parents, you know, um, the desire for their kids to swim, they want to make sure that, you know, through their lives, you know, um, that this is one focus area where they uh, develop. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Linda's calling from Stony Brook. Linda, go ahead. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I listening. Oh, Linda, Linda, it sounds like you're breaking up. Start over. Okay. Sorry. Um, listening to the article and having grown up in the South um, and the historical component of what the, pres- the professor was discussing, Um, was swimming, I remember um, very poignantly a time when I was a child and my mom was a swim coach and we had a summer swim team of going to a pool and we had a handful of African-American swimmers on our team. And I remember um, the country club that we were competing against, um, they they basically told us that all the swimmers of um, that were not African-American could participate um, in the program. And so uh, that I think seeing that in the South and having taught lessons and also teaching adults how to swim um, as I got into college, we saw and uh, that disparity between, you know, people coming to the pool and historically almost seeing it as a place, um, just the hurts and the generations that you were that feeling of being um, excluded Um and a big proponent of why, you know, parents and grandparents were not bringing kids to the pool, um, trying to get over that stigmatism. I think up here, what I've seen is you don't see that as much um, up in the north and up here in New York, um, which has been a really good thing. Um, I do see in the south that communities are pushing because that dialogue has been um, there for a long time. Um, and so that that is very encouraging, um, access to more community, community pools and community programs um, to try to um, lessen that gap. Well, Linda, thank you for your call. You know, we did reach out to historian Stacy Close uh, uh, in Connecticut because we were curious, too, about we hear so often about segregation in the South. We heard from uh, um, author and professor Jeff Wildsey that segregation was just as bad uh, in the North, and especially when we look at access to swimming pools. Uh, Stacy Close uh, told, telling us that YMCA pools were initially off limits to African-Americans. And there was a specific case in Hartford in the 20s. Only after complaints did the why give African-Americans access to the pool, and that was only on Sunday. Uh, we're also getting a tweet from a listener who writes, my uh, entire family knows how to swim from great-grandparents on down. And she writes, FYI, black folks generally avoid boats and the water. So let's talk a little bit about that, Elver, what KG just said. Hey, I'll be very honest. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've been on vacation, I've traveled, and a lot of my friends, they don't want to go over a bridge the fear that something may happen, they'll fall over. You won't take a cruise. 
um, because of the water and absolutely very, very fearful. Even if it's a f- like two feet of water, three feet of water, um, you would feel you should feel like confident going in that. They don't. Um, and it's just that lifelong. I haven't been in the pool. I haven't been in any kind of water. Why should I go in? And something's bad's going to happen. Mm. Um, also in the studio with us again is Nazir Peters, a sophomore at UConn lifeguard and swim instructor at LEAP. Uh, you're younger than the rest of us, uh, Nazir. <laughs> Do you see that generational fear? Is it going away? Or is it still there? Um, I could say I see it, but it, when we teach our adults, I can definitely see that fear going away uh, from experience with teaching adults. And, and Henry, before we head to break, we should mention that you receive uh, grants to help with these programs, specifically from USA Swimming Foundation, also the Community Foundation Fund. Can you talk about um, uh, those, uh, those two uh, streams that help you do the work that you're doing? Absolutely. So USA Swimming has been a great partner um, for a couple of years now and actually um, helped train um, some, of our, uh, uh, some of our lifeguards and swim instructors um, at kind of the next uh, more advanced level as we consider maybe starting a swim team. Um, and the Community Foundation has been particularly helpful um, in supporting our work with um, uh, girls, particularly girls of color, um, in helping uh, them to swim. Uh, and there's some unique issues that um, develop with, um, particularly with African-American girls, around um, uh, around uh, you know what things that stop them from getting in the pool. So for um, young teenagers, uh, as they're getting their period, um, and uh, concerns about um, body image, um, and also about um, getting their hair wet, um, uh, and uh, kind of dealing with um, uh, dealing with all of those issues are things that. Um, uh, we work uh, closely. Uh, the young women who um, work for Albert um, actually uh, spend time talking about all those issues um, with uh, uh, teenage and preteen girls um, so they can have greater comfort in the pool and they can understand that um, all of those issues are, um, can be pretty quickly dealt with and, and make it easy for them to, to enter the pool. And that's really supported by the Community Foundation Women and Girls Grant. Henry Fernandez, Executive Director of LEAP New Haven. Uh, You're going to stick around with us for our next segment, but I want to thank Elbert Eden, LEAP's Youth Development and Aquatics Director, for coming in. Also, Nazir Peters, a lifeguard and a UConn sophomore. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, coming up, we're going to learn more about how the city of New Haven school district is working to prevent summer slide. What's that? You're going to find out more after the break, and you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, swimming programs are one way to enrich children during summer months, but how do you keep them from losing what they've learned during the 10 months of school? Loss and achievement is known as the summer slide, and joining our conversation is Will Clark, Chief Operating Officer of New Haven Public Schools. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So um, some of our listeners may have heard this term summer slide, others um, maybe not. So talk a little bit about uh, what this means exactly. 
Well, essentially, the summer slide is the uh, absence of education for a couple of months in the summer, and the um, issue with the kids are not uh, repeating the skills that they're learning in the classroom on a daily basis for the 10 months of the school year, and uh, with getting out of that practice and repetition that they may regress uh, over the period of the summer and then come back in the fall maybe a little bit further behind than then when they left in June, and thus the first part of the school year is, is more catch-up uh, and, and perhaps some, some lost time uh, to then get back to where uh, they were. So we're really uh, intentionally focused on understand that issue, particularly in urban education, and, and uh, try to put together summer programs and opportunities that offer kids the chance to um, both catch up uh, for those who need some credit recovery um, and remedial work, um, but also just to keep kids engaged. Um, you know, studies have shown that reading uh, just six books o- over the summer, for example, can, can limit uh, or eliminate any potential regression. And maintaining that sort of academic focus and practice and working on things, whether it's in a school program or some of the online tools we offer, uh, we found can be really successful. So give us an idea of what programs we're talking about. So we know that exercise is important. Also, you want to see them continue to read, uh, but you know, also being able to feed the children who rely on free and reduced lunch during the year. Right. Those are uh, great points because for us, we have uh, a f- big food insecurity issue, a big hunger issue here uh, in New Haven and in most urban areas. We're very proud working with Congresswoman DeLauro and uh, End Hunger and the state of Connecticut and, and, and many other partners uh, here locally um, to have the largest uh, summer feeding program in the state of Connecticut. Uh, we service um, uh, sites, uh, 80 plus sites, that includes food sites, but we've also expanded to a food truck and food buses, believe it or not, with our bus company uh, that delivers meals to parks and uh, places where kids are gathering. So we realize we can't just count on them coming to us. We've got to go to them as well. So uh, we're very proud of expanding those efforts for breakfast, lunch, and now suppers, um, and also working with um, other partners uh, to have um, um, food pantries um, at some of these locations as well. So we're feeding an 18 and under population with the way the summer meal program works, but then our partners at the food bank can offer uh, opportunities for families and adults uh, to get food as well. So kids can eat, adults can take some food home to make nutritional meals, uh, and it kind of creates a nice win-win. That's something that's been worked on with our Food Policy Council and our Food Service Department and our Wellness Committee that uh, we're really proud of. But to your point on the athletics, and I was listening in to Henry and and the work that LEAP has done, um, you know, we also know that kids need a break too, right? And uh, you know, the, the, just more school is not uh, the first thing on their list of things to do in the summer. So we do try to package together with other partners, Police Athletic League, PAL, uh, Schooner um, uh, works and gets kids out on the water, uh, the program, the Land Trust, uh, Common Ground, a number of other partners that are doing a variety of camps. Our Parks Department has a number of camps. So we have some that we can partner with, or we're doing some um, instruction during the morning, but then there's opportunities for the kids in the afternoon to do uh, field trips and get outside and and get their hands dirty and and have some fun and and open pools and and things like that. So we're very cognizant of the need to service the whole child. 
so we want to make sure we're focused on reading and math and science opportunities, but also making it fun and having the opportunity for the kids to engage in free play as well as uh, some organized and, uh, and, and structured play. And one last one I'll just mention is that we do have expanded into you know very focused areas, so it's not just remedial, but higher-end coding, math, um, and other programs that kids can sign up for based upon their academic standing. And so, you know, we go from, on the one hand, helping with remedial and credit recovery support, to the other hand, um, you know, building robots and, and engaging in higher-end math skills and, and things to really cultivate um, those students' uh, coding and the computers that are pushing for that uh, next level as well. Well, Clark is Chief Operating Officer of New Haven Public Schools. Henry Fernandez is also with us, Executive Director of LEAP in New Haven. Uh, this is, again, a nonprofit organization that supports some of these programs to help uh, children um, retain some of the, what they've learned during the school year. But also, it's important to have fun, Henry. And not all kids have parents that can send them to summer camp. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the, the, the fun programs that LEAP is working on with New Haven Kids. Absolutely. And, I, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out, too, that um, we couldn't run our summer programs without just an amazing partnership with Will and uh, the New Haven Public Schools, um, both because they provide um, five school buildings for us um, that we uh, we have about 100 kids at each of those school buildings. And then um, Will mentioned the feeding program. Um, and we're a, a feeding site um, ourselves at our community center. And then um, our kids um, make use of the uh, feeding program when they're on field trips, but also in the schools. Um, so we run a literacy program um, very much focused on um, what Will uh, talked about, um, making sure that um, kids are um, reading every day. And so our morning uh, summer camp, the, the mornings of our, our summer camp, our camp runs from uh, 8 to 4 every day. Um, the, the mornings are focused on um, literacy. Um, we have a whole bunch of activities that college and high school students do with um, younger kids. Uh, and then the afternoons are focused on things like swimming, um, we do a lot of overnight camping with kids. We have a great project with the Peabody Museum at Yale um, around teaching natural sciences to kids. Um, we visit all the museums. Um, we do the, the New Haven Public Library has been um, a great resource. Uh, we get our kids around all around the city to, to all the amazing activities that are in the city um, through a wonderful partnership with the State Department of Transportation. Uh, but the key thing here is that school uh, that you know we want kids to not think of uh, the summer as school. Um, so while we sneak in a lot of literacy work and make sure that um, they uh, read about uh, twelve books on average during the summer, um, but uh, in addition, um, having all these fun um, athletics and uh, artistic um, and exploratory activities is is really important. Whether your kids in a program like Leap or just if you're trying to figure out what for your what your kids should do this uh, do during the summer. A lot of things that they can't do, they just don't have the, the time uh, to explore during the school year. Well, I want to thank Henry Fernandez, Executive Director of LEAP in New Haven. Thanks a lot, Henry. Thank well, you very also, much. Thanks, thanks for having us. Thanks to Will Clark, Chief Operating Officer of New Haven Public Schools. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. It's been two years since I began hosting Where We Live. I couldn't do it without a great team. Uh, Lydia Brown, Carmen Baskoff, and Kyone Wolf. And you, the listener, thanks so much for joining us four days a week and listening to our podcast. Thanks again and have a great weekend.